This is Art House Roadshow, a podcast on film, faith, and mental health with your hosts, Kyle Myers and Hank Spaulding. And welcome back to another episode of the Art House Roadshow. Today's an exciting day because uh, I am reunited, rejoined, and just obvious, honestly better off uh, in the presence of my dear friend and co-host, uh, Kyle, who rejoins us after a too long of a summer. How are you doing, yeah, Kyle? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. I'm uh, very happy to be here. Yeah? How are you? Uh, how's your summer been for our viewers or, or I guess, listeners? Yeah, uh, it's been okay. I've uh, battled some sickness, some general, I assume, midlife kinds of, you know, <laughs> things. Um, and so that's not been as fun, but... Uh, but just typically managing family life at home and getting mm-hmm. kids to the place they need to be through their jobs and swim team. Uh, my oldest son, who just finished his first year of college, was, he's in Germany in Berlin this month. Oh, wow. Um, which is great. He um, uh, just recently visited one of the oldest movie studios slash museums um, south of Belfast. Um, where uh, Murnau and Hitchcock and others, and, and still today, Tarantino, Wes Anderson made part of Asteroid City mm. um, at this studio, so still very much alive and running, but over 100 mm-hmm. years old. Wow. Um, and is full of you know movie history, uh, in addition to being in the context of uh, Germany in the last 100 years, so really fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. incredible, yeah. That, that's probably a wonderful little tour for him, just uh, knowing his love of films and those kind of things so that's a that's a great trip so he's still there you said he's there yeah for another uh, like week and a half oh and wow it's the, uh for learning german he's in five hours of class a day but obviously the group is also uh traveling around on the weekends and and visiting a number of different uh museums and monuments and history so it's it's a pretty great opportunity that's fantastic yeah that's fantastic 100 well um it's interesting with um we're close to, for us, to the back of the beginning of the school year, so we're back almost to a regular schedule. Um, we still have yeah. our um, body snatchers, uh, which we've been promising since spring, <laughs> yep. but we'll get into that in the fall. Um, today, we're going to cover uh, a little bit of some of the movies of 2023 so far. There have just been a lot of films that have been, I mean, it's summer movie season, and so there's been a lot of yep. films kind of condensed into a very short period of time. Um, that we want to talk about um, just together. Obviously, the biggest set, I guess, is the uh, Barbenheimer um, <laughs> frenzy that has swept the nation. It's uh, true, man. It's, it's really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think they've said, uh, they being um, those who report on movie statistics and, and income and things like that, that it's probably one of the bigger movie weekends of all time. Yeah. Just because there were, I think AMC released that about 20,000 users had bought tickets simultaneously for Oppenheimer and Barbie on the same day. Um, and, you know, it's kind of one of those organic uh, things that came about that no one really uh, planned. Uh, that kind of like social media and other things kind of took over. And so people planned to go see both. And I mean, both of them are very interesting films uh, to go see very unique in their own way um but um kind of before we get into the barbenheimer um i wanted to kind of uh hear from you kyle and i can share my list too what are some of the movies maybe that are not on people's radar or um maybe that people have uh 
not gone out of their way to see that you would recommend for them to try and go see if they can. Yeah, you mean other than Super Mario Brothers? That's right, yeah, <laughs> other than Super Mario Brothers, yes. Um, which was fun. That was fun. Yeah, it's a fun movie. Um, yeah. yeah, so I haven't seen a ton uh, this year, but um, obviously commented uh, at some point in the spring on Renfield, mm. the uh, Nicolas Cage uh, Dracula movie directed by Chris McKay, who made mm-hmm. the Lego Batman movie, uh, mm-hmm. one of my favorite movies. Um, and so it was uh, just sort of a send-up of – um, the world of um, therapy in relationship to Dracula and codependency um, and grief and guilt. So it was a lot of fun, uh, a funny kind of variation on, on those themes but th- that I really liked. That was really funny. Um, <clears throat> Asteroid City, uh, which we can talk a little bit more about, and maybe you know it's probably on people's radar, uh, especially if you're a fan of Wes Anderson. Right. But, um, it's been interesting from its kind of universal praise, which is not typical in the later years of um, Wes Anderson's career. Um, so that's, that's interesting as well. Um, and then, I mean, I think the one that's probably not on people's radars as much is a Japanese anime called Suzume, Although in Japan, uh, the director Shinkai is as popular as any director there, and it's always a big event. Mm-hmm. Um, when a new movie is released, as I'm learning this, this is not something I've kept up with, but have gone back and revisited several of his mm-hmm. films. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will actually relate to our Body Snatchers, uh, Lovecraft, Alien. You know, Aliens are of the moment as well right now in right. the news media, so it'll be actually maybe worth the wait um for our for our podcast coming up that's right uh, I, yeah i yeah. do love that that was not made really major news yeah like in a in an age where every week we uh have some new epic or some new like unforeseen things or like uh new times that the news of the existence of aliens just kind of went under mm-hmm. the radar uh, so anyway sorry I no no 100 man uh so much to explore there and that i love that uh, have other uh, threads to go off on with that. But anyways, Suzume is very much a, you know, cosmic um, <clears throat> kind of anime feature and has a lot going on that is uh, very much um, cinematic, very spiritual, very emotional, mm-hmm. um, and just a lot of fun. You know, just kind of a big epic scale uh, movie that I'm absolutely in love with. Mm. So, <clears throat> couldn't have my higher recommendation probably on any movie uh, this year other than maybe Asteroid City, which I have seen three times. Um, and but you know, uh, we'll talk about uh, Spider Verse here a little bit too. I really loved a lot of the you know Christ oriented stuff happening in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Mission Impossible, mm. um, Dead Reckoning. Uh, also, uh, more Christian than it's ever been. Um, mm-hmm. Text and subtext uh, going on there in in that one. So you know, I'm mm-hmm. in love with that. But I was already um, in love with that series, and even from a you know Buster Keaton, uh, Jackie Ch- Chan standpoint uh, in terms of stunts and mm-hmm. and less CGI and just more pure movie mm-hmm. movie. Uh, stuff happening. Um, I'm a big champion of those films and Tom Cruise's whole agenda um, there to uh, outstunt himself every movie. So That's right. I love it. I heard that when uh, he and the director met for the first time, um, the director asked him what stunt he's always wanted to do. 
and he asked the same question back to the director. And Tom Cruise says, I've always wanted to parachute off of a cliff that I just drove a motorcycle over. And the director <laughs> said, I really want to crash a train. Um, mm-hmm. Now, that's a, it's a very stunning movie. I remember the last one. I forget the name of it. It wasn't uh, gross. Fallout. Fallout. Yep. That's where he broke his ankle doing that stunt where he jumped from roof to roof. Um, they actually mm-hmm. show that scene yeah. in the trailer. You can actually see him um, when he makes that leap. You can see him break his ankle yep. right there. Um, and and uh, still to this day, one of the most intense fight scenes I've ever seen with Henry Cavill, Tom Cruise, and a, a third actor. It was just absolutely like mind-blowing. <laughs> it was exhausting, too. Yeah. By the end of it, I was tired. Yeah, um, is that the bathroom fight? That's the bathroom yeah, yeah, fight. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is exhausting. It really is. So, I mean, granted, it's like it's hard to see Henry Cavill in a villain role, but sure, um, he was because, good. Yeah, I mean, I mean, The Witcher, Superman. I mean, yep. he's, he's, I mean, I don't know, Truth, Justice, and the American Way seem to be his thing. Yep. Uh, but I don't want to typecast him. Um, but yeah, that's those are good. I um, we uh, uh, if for those of you who've listened to the podcast, know that I re- did a double review with The Flash and. Uh, Spider-Verse because they both kind of shared yeah. a, a singular I mean we're still going down this multiverse road there's kind of three properties that are doing it there's the Spider-Man kind of group there's the multiverse that's coming from Doctor Strange and the rest of the MCU and then there's this multiverse that's coming from uh, DC which is coming to an end because they're going to reboot the whole thing right um, and I, th- I mean I really I mean part of it's just for me and I mentioned this there I liked The Flash only because um, I feel like Michael Keaton kind of got his like send off that he needed, you know, or deserved. Yeah, sure. Um, those first two movies were a big part of my childhood. I mean, the the Mission Impossible movies have been a part of my childhood too, um, but the the first two Batman movies with Tim Burton and uh, Michael Keaton were big parts, and I feel like he did amazing. <laughs> in Absolutely, this, yeah, in he this was film. great. Yeah, so. Um, I, you can leave all the other stuff aside, um, but I just love the, uh, uh, like when they go into Russia and break out Supergirl, um, with Michael Keaton's Batman, it is just incredible. Yeah. 100. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, I, I love that. I, I still contend that, um, for me, my favorite movie of the year has been even through the Barbenheimer series has been a good person featuring Florence Pugh. Yeah. And Mar- Morgan Freeman, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful telling. Um, and then uh, we we mentioned this recently, the uh, on the tail end of 2022 into 2023. I think I watched it early 2023. Um, was a man called Otto with Tom Hanks, um, and I, I was really blown away by that. And mm-hmm. I've gotten into Richard Bachman um, uh, as a result of that. Just finished reading Anxious People, which mm. is really really good. Um, highly recommend that if you're looking for. Uh, a final summer read before you head back into uh, the fall, uh, but it's a and that's the guy who wrote the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a man called Ove uh, is yep. what it's called. They changed it to Otto for the movie. Um, I, I sure there's a reason. I just have not done any research. <laughs> yeah, that. yeah. I mean, who knows? But they, I know that uh, it was a European film first, mm-hmm. right, with the original title instead right. of the American, in order to separate, I guess. Uh, yeah gave a different name but yeah. yeah and all of his stuff is translated i mean he's got a lot i didn't realize this but he's got a lot of novels out like that are various movie properties anxious people which is the book i just rec- recommended it's already on netflix but it's um it's also european mm-hmm. so you got to watch it dubbed and then on hbo uh, they do a they 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 have a series based on his uh other book called bear town which um i have not seen 
Yep. And so, um, anyway, I'm really excited to kind of dive into him. Anxious people for those, I mean, this isn't a book podcast, but, um, it's sure. still really good. It's, yeah. uh, it has this way of weaving together, like all these different stories into a singular narrative. And there's a really interesting play on like theological themes in there. And one of the characters, mom, who is, uh, uh deceased is a priest. Uh, you find that out really early in the novel. Um, and you kind of hear how her, work influenced her son even though he does not identify as religious how that has shaped him mm. as and how it shapes also other characters and there's really powerful things i mean reading that alongside of uh wendell berry's jaber crow though i maybe i'm reading into it a little bit too much because that one is a lot more on the nose i think in terms of its um, theological depth um sure sure but i mean other than that guardians of the galaxy i've been high on that ever since it came out i think the like the eschatology stuff there is really good. Um, yeah, I, I did know. not see that. Yeah, it's. I mean, I mean, I, I went into it not expecting much because usually trilogies like the third one is kind of falls off. But I was really impressed with the rocket centric story and how, like, it talks about the themes of like what it means to be human and ultimately, you know, um, meaning making and how that all works out. And I, I really, really enjoyed that film. Um, and there's a lot of things in there that I, I really appreciated deeply. I'm still about two-thirds through Asteroid City. Um, Wes Anderson movies take me a long time to watch. With the exception of The Life Aquatic. Mm. I still contend that's my favorite. Yeah. Even after now getting through um, uh, uh, most of Asteroid City, I still think that's my favorite. Yeah. Um, right on. But um, anyway, so Wes Anderson is a good point. But let's... Uh, Let's dive into the the movies of the moment, unless you've got some other movies you want to talk about. No, go about. ahead, man. I want to hear your opinions on Barbie and Oppenheimer. Uh, yeah, so Barbenheimer. I was one of the ones who actually did do uh, the Barbenheimer, um, uh, but I did it like Oppen Barbie, really, because uh, I watched Oppenheimer first and then Barbie. Sure. Um, I, I like conversations about the ethics of war, so I think I went into it with that mindset in play. Um, and obviously Christopher Nolan has a certain aesthetic to his movies that I was very, like very, very minimal CGI, if at all. I know that he went into this not planning on using, I don't think he ended up doing that CGI for the atomic bomb, which a lot of people made jokes that there's like, did he set off a nuclear bomb yeah, right. somewhere? Like, uh, which I thought was quite hilarious. And he, he since, you know, confirmed online is like, no, I did not set off a nuclear <laughs> bomb somewhere, which, um, is really great. But, um, I mean, it's very interesting to see kind of um, uh, Killian Murphy's um, acting performance here. Um, there's, uh, and some of it, it seems like a little like flat at the beginning. Like you don't really see as much of the struggle kind of leading up to it. But really, there's a culmination in a scene after the bomb is dropped where you see kind of Oppenheimer um, simultaneously praising the effort of. Uh, the Manhattan Project, while also kind of like in his mind seeing what the effects must be, mm -hmm. which I thought was an interesting theme in this film. Is and I'll, I'll call it this, and this may be too intense, and I so I will apologize for that, but I can't really think of another way. But it seems like there is in this movie a kind of false humility um, in the scientific community that they depict at least, because mm -hmm. in, in one on on the one side. Like, I understand that the the immediacy behind building it was so that the Nazis don't build it. But it seems to me that there, it, when one, one builds a bomb, 
what does one think that is going to be done with that bomb? <laughs> yeah. And it seems like there's a lot of people that are in this film that um, seem to be kind of shocked when uh, a bomb is dropped on um, a population and used like bombs are used. Um, and so I kind of felt that that was a little bit like they're shifting the blame. This movie was more to the politicians and to the military mm. for the result of Interesting, this destruction. Yeah. And I think that, you know, even though um, Oppenheimer, I think, does like he says, I have blood on my hands. Right. Yeah. Um, I still think that they go light on the fact that like for science and this is an ongoing ethical debate. And for me, this is my jam <laughs> is uh, <clears throat> the ongoing ethical debate is like science um, does not have, um, for lack of a better term, bias. Um, it just has a method that is unbiased and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I don't buy that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Mostly because I, I think that there are a lot of, I mean, scientists are themselves biased because they are the ones who perform the science. And so science gives us things like eugenics. I mean, all different kinds of like scientific things that are happening. So I'm not a proponent of completely deregulating science and letting them kind of just do whatever mm -hmm. because um, <clears throat> everything has value systems. And here in Oppenheimer, I think you see that like they're, there are like this is not just simple science right this is or just like seeing where things are going i i really wish that it in terms of how we teach like stem specifically um not a can we do this mindset but should we mm -hmm. you know what is the contribution to the overall good there's i mean there's a lot more i want to say here but i am also interested to hear what you think about oppenheimer because you've seen it right mm -hmm. yeah so what do you what are your thoughts yeah um well, those are a lot of great thoughts um, you were having there, um, and that I want to come back to for sure. But I think in general, I'm not a Nolan fan. Uh, I think I do like the Batman trilogy because it's Batman. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, <clears throat> but I, I, um, I mean, there's just a lot happening all the time, mm -hmm. um, and with the sound design and with the images mm -hmm. and the intercutting and. Uh, at the beginning, he's you know using a lot of like Malick Tree of Life mm. images, of space, and and you're kind of in Oppenheimer's mind, you know, as he's visualizing black holes and and you know all these physics and quantum physics and everything going on. It's all really obviously fascinating, and it is fascinating mm -hmm. relationships and things are, are going on there. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, as a whole it's you know so i think the thing that strikes me rather than um rambling um is the kind of guilt blood on my hands uh experience mm -hmm. um and 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 there's been you know i've read a little bit about the controversy but i definitely immediately had a question of why they're not showing japan mm -hmm. uh, uh images from japan right post the bombs being dropped or the bombs being dropped uh, the, themselves and Nolan's reason for that is just a story in terms of storytelling, staying in Oppenheimer's uh, own experience. Yeah, um, which I kind of understand, um, but I think what ends up missing is that the best we get from Oppenheimer is guilt, mm -hmm. um, and then the world of guilt, you know, uh, exists only in a world of kind of manipulation and justification, which is where you get your politics and you get your blame shifting and whatever. Right. That's what guilt has to offer. 
Um, and so what we don't get are, you know, the opportunity. And I did, I started to actually be emotionally invested. I think around when, you know, they're leading up to testing the bomb. Right. Uh, and actually seeing it. And I like that he chose silence, you know, which is obviously would have been realistic. You're going to see things before you hear and feel them. Um, but the uh, allowing us to see uh, and then feel uh, that whole experience was <clears throat> pretty overwhelming mm-hmm. um, and brought up a lot of uh, feelings for me in just experiencing mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, and then anticipating seeing, you know, images from Japan. And so not seeing images from Japan. Right. Um, I think that does not allow us to enter into any kind of grief. Right. Right. Uh, and all, all the, you know, um, uh, emotional experiences related to that. So, mm-hmm. so we don't get to move from, from guilt to grief. Uh, and the movie has to just kind of like wind itself around guilt, getting us to the end mm-hmm. and the complications of, you know, his association with communism and the whole world of all that in the 1950s. Um, and the Cold War and who's the spy, you know, and all these kinds of kind right. of like, you know, uh, Nolan kind of things in, in his more recent movies. Um, and that to me just became like, uh, boring, you know, like not, you know, le- much less interesting. Yeah. Um, and I know they, they do try to convey this, you know, again, the sense of, uh, sadness even with, with Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, not, not enough to feel like, uh, we're really able to unpack Mm-hmm. Uh, emotionally or what you're saying ethically right um, in a way that seems responsible to mm-hmm. the story no I think you're right you named it and I don't think I really was able to put together why the last third of the movie for me kind of fell flat until yeah. you kind of described it because I think in some sense they do shift from I mean the most we get is a, a series of shots of Oppenheimer looking at slides of what people right. experienced in Japan yep um but, you know, they kind of leave the nuclear bomb behind as they're talking about the development of the hydrogen bomb. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the rest of the film is more about, like, the credibility of Oppenheimer. Um, you know, him getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, and the uh, so, for example, like, I think one of the, I mean, one of the things I've heard, I mean, obviously, um, in the film, one of the more interesting things is that um, they actually dubbed over the real Oppenheimer's voice when the bomb goes off and, and he says, I've become death, mm. destroy of worlds. Not from earlier in the film when he's with Florence Pugh. That's not the voice. It's actually the voice of the real Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone associates that with the bomb right. test. But he also says, I've now seen what the last man on earth will see, mm. which I think is a really profound statement and leads even to the conversation. I almost wish that there was more on that last conversation with Einstein, which mm. kind of ends the film. Because I sure. think that's where you could move into the grief more constructively. Yeah. Um, and so it's a story about like the Red Scare and the, I mean, the inserted story of, even though he acted this part beautifully with Robert Downey Jr., I'm also a really big Robert Downey Jr. fan, yeah. but I also didn't feel like that story was necessary. Right. It didn't feel like it was necessary. It felt kind of forced um, and it was more about, and this is why I think that it seems to be really, um, in some sense, like trying to, 
develop this false humility for scientists because what that story seems to say is that well this guy's anti-science so we should not confirm him mm. and that's that kind of seemed to double down on some of the themes from earlier in the film which really rubbed me the wrong way but also i love that i mean it was very boring and i couldn't really put a name to that because the movie itself was exciting as a whole but that story was just very uninteresting to me yeah sure in the yeah, process i'm so. with you and i think yeah nolan uh made it quite obvious that his point from earlier in the movie um with i forget the scientist's name uh who who uh through his calculations brings up the possibility of the chain reaction right yeah um if that's the right word but uh that when we set off the bomb you know we could have this reaction in the atmosphere that could just literally burn up the whole earth right um and there's a less than zero chance which is still a chance but obviously the the chain reaction uh, ultimately just became, you know, fear, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it became the Cold War. It became all the stuff we're no longer in control of, no right. matter how much we try to inter have the, you know, set up the international government and, and all these things, um, that this is a very scary time. Um, and even under the threat of, you know, uh, man how the world manages Russia and Ukraine. Right. Um, and the threats there and how we kind of walk around and, and, um, and try to figure this whole thing out without, you know, without risking uh, horror, uh, literally. Um, and, you know, self-annihilation. So that's, yeah. that's all, you know, quite, um, uh, quite fascinating. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that so they they go to I, the first time we this well the second time we see Einstein and kind of the um, they tell two stories one's in more of a black and white which is a future kind of um, uh, retrospective and then there's like a time progressing forward time progressing backwards kind of feel you're right like Nolan loves this kind of time wobbly thing totally um I mean he <laughs> I mean Tenet is really just that intentional like that's what that movie is. Right. Um, and I, I liked, I mean, I liked Tenet fine as an action film. I had no idea what anybody was saying when they did the switch. Um, uh, but whatever, that's not the point. The, uh, um, the whole point of this like language with, um, this, uh, will we set off a chain reaction that will lead into the ignition of the or ignition, the igniting of the atmosphere and destruction of life on the planet. I mean, I feel like Matt Damon's reaction was the reaction that the normal rational thinking person, even though, you know, he's, right. he's very invested in the development of this bomb. Right. Um, it's like, why are we doing this? If there's a chance we could end all life on earth, <laughs> you know, like it's, what's the point of winning the war if we destroy the, the whole world. And so he talks to Einstein about this, you know, and Einstein says, you know, well, Hey, you stop working on it. And then you tell the Nazis as immediately that that's what happened. I thought that was again, a very, level-headed thinking on mm -hmm. it but i at the point like of the point of matt damon's character i don't know how that wasn't the end of it like yeah, right if there is a chance at all why are we doing this mm -hmm. um and i think that even with like the hydro development of the hydrogen bomb i mean the kind of nuclear bombs that we have now and the hydrogen bombs that we have now are you know just astronomically more powerful than the one that was dropped on the ones that were dropped on japan um, and so it's, it's fascinating to me that like, in some sense, humanity is kind of bent on its own destruction, um, in a certain sense. Um, and I mean, first of all, on the ethics side of this, I just want to lay this out there in terms of just war theory. Like it's pretty clear that the dropping of the nuclear bombs are like, does not fit any metric because there's no way to, you know, discriminate between combatants and non-combatants. Right. 
there's been an argument that's been put out there that like you can't really say that anyone in Japan is a non-combatant because of the this language of samurai culture that I've heard, which I don't ne necessarily think is fair. The point is is that like you yeah. can't um, like you can't discriminate at all. There's no way to discriminate with a nuclear bomb. And yep. So like you can target effectively with like, um, I mean, some military technology. And the thing that's really funny about this whole language, or at least interesting, without going too far down this rabbit hole, is that just war theory is developed like back when like the pinnacle of military technology was a bow and arrow. <laughs> you yeah, know? right. And so it's it's one of those things that like you know the technology so has outpaced the ethics mm -hmm. that again it's not the it's not the could we it's it should we i mean should we do this mm -hmm. develop these weapons that can do these things that are just so destructive um and there's a lot of like i've done a lot of reading on the ethics of and like the specifics of like hiroshima and nagasaki and i've got lots of opinions on those that i don't i mean this isn't an ethics podcast but at the same time like that all comes up in this yeah, film at 100 and it's one of those things that's really interesting to hear them say you know no, no surrender, all that kind of stuff. There's no other way to do it. Saving us versus them. I mean, a part of it's proportionality. Like, you know, we put all the risk. Proportionality in just war is saying that I, if for a just war to exist, I am equally in danger as much as you are in our fight. Sure. Um, and nuclear bombs are not that. <laughs> you know, obviously it's all on one side, as is bombing for that matter. And so, yep. again, these are, these are really important ethical questions that we've largely neglected because the question of war is how do we win mm -hmm. um and as someone who you know thinks through nonviolence, and i at least want people to be honest just war people not if you're not going to yeah. be nonviolent, okay but let's at least try and do this in a way that's just and moral and good and things like that so anyway. yeah yeah no that's all great um and i think too it also plays into medical technology and everything that we've, you know, from the time of trying to, you know, what, what is this berry going to do? You know, yeah. and, well, I guess it's poisonous because you just died. Um, <laughs> and so that's not a good berry. Uh, but this other berry is medicinal, you mm -hmm. know, this seems to be healing, right? But how do we figure that out? How do we find out, you know, right. that, that that's true coming up through, you know, uh, when medical technology, we use bleeding, uh, to try to bleed people out to get rid of things, obviously, you know, not helpful. And, and then getting into the body and then getting into the atoms and then getting, you know, um, and developing stem cells and, and now AI. Right. Um, so we're just, you know, um, it seems incapable of not exploring, mm -hmm. uh, whether we're exploring lands or internal, out, you know, outer space, aliens, um, all these things that are that are in our sphere, and not only do we want to know, um, but and coming back to ethical questions, but uh, whether we admit it or not, we'd like to control, mm -hmm. um, and we like to live longer, and we like to you know um, not feel pain, X Y Z. These things that are you know very much um, just like yeah, you know I don't want to have a headache. I want to take ibuprofen. Right. Um, and uh, those kinds of choices that, you know, we don't come back to, like, what are we really doing? This really gets into Wendell Berry territory when you get into agriculture and food um, and this whole system um, and and sustainability, all that stuff. Um, um, and a lot of it because, you know, just it's become more globalized. But uh, for all of industrial revolution, right, for most of us, it's been unconsciously, you know, like brought into our life mm -hmm. one way or another economically 
whatever, we don't grow food anymore. It's at the grocery store, right. which, you know, impacts, it relies on gas to ship, blah, 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 all this stuff, you know, that it becomes more and more fragile. Right. More and more fragile. Mm-hmm. Uh, becomes more and more convenient, but mm-hmm. more and more fragile. So it's really interesting yeah. uh, to be conscious of and really hard um, to try to hold these things and recognize choices that we have and, and right. whatever. Yeah, no, and it's one of those things that I, I think that these um, agrarian readers like uh, Wendell Berry, like George Saunders, and now joining the ranks, uh, Nick Offerman, um, right. yeah, for <laughs> at, sure. writing on these things, I think they, they have a lot to tell us because, I mean, people look at that and they probably think, oh, well, this is just a reflection on, um, you know, if you're a believer, you know, creation or you know, this is a reflection on nature or something like that. But I think the thing that these authors offer offer us, and I mean, even when you read Jaber Crow, is this really intense um, feeling for home, and that this feeling for home is not just a like a house or a street or something like that. It's the entire ecology around it. It's the river. It's the it's the mountains. You know, it's the farmland. It's like there's something about it that is endearing that connects us to who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these inventions, you know, might help us, you know, live longer or like be more expedient, but they ultimately deteriorate that sense of home as well, because they need to use it in a certain way. Or if you drop a bomb on it, it makes it, you know, completely negated. I mean, there's been a lot of conversation coming out of New Mexico since Oppenheimer's come out about like the unintended consequences that Oppenheimer didn't even realize that happened to the people of New Mexico surrounding oh, yeah. Los Alamos. No doubt. Um, I mean, they ban- they've banned this movie in Japan, <laughs> you know, and, ob- sure. and I mean, for obvious reasons, I mean, there would yeah. be, um, there would probably be, you know, and, and I've heard, you know, comparisons that are uh, very interesting in terms of like, what does it look like to try and put a sympathetic light on a guy that was, you know, is very, very responsible for destructions of hundred thousand people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I I mean, it's, I think it's a, a genuine, genuine, genuinely important question to ask. What does it mean to tell history in this way? Um, Absolutely. Well, without, I mean, I, we don't need to leave Oppenheimer necessarily here, but I do want to talk about Barbie, mm-hmm. um, which is again, a very different movie, just very different aesthetic movie. Um, and I also think that it, it would be interesting to talk about Oppenheimer in relationship to Asteroid City, because yeah. uh, the theme of grief is on full display in Asteroid City. And I mean, for me, obviously, this is something I think that's interesting. There's a nuclear bomb that mm-hmm. goes off near Asteroid City, which I thought in some sense was this is this feels intentional. But I think that this connects like this is an intentional, not jab, but like trying to at least name something that they're going to eventually do. And so um, anyway. With Barbie, really quick, um, uh, you know, I think it's I think it's a fascinating movie. It's very clearly, I mean, Greta Gerwig. Um, I've been a big fan of hers ever since you had us watch Lady Bird, because mm. um, I'd never seen that, and Lady Bird is now catapulted to the top of my favorite movies of all time. Sure, um, and she's going to be doing the new Narnia films, um, which I think are going to be really great. Um, and I, you know, this movie was so funny. Um, I'm a really big fan of, uh, the way that Margot Robbie, um, like she acts in this film and also just kind of the humor that she and Ryan Gosling bring into it. 
Um, really big fan of that. I thought it had an interesting story about like the way that society is structured. And I think that's the way it's connected even to uh, Oppenheimer is like the kind of structures that make life possible and make other versions of life not possible. Um, and using Barbie as kind of a trope to name that I thought was a fascinating um, thing, right? Because mm -hmm. Barbie um, obviously is a, a toy that's been around forever, um, created to uh, for young girls. And so it's it's been liberating for some, not for others. Um, and it's an interesting um, conversation on languages of patriarchy and how it even harms men in the process, like how Ken undergoes this transformation that I don't really think is for his benefit. And it actually kind of unmasks that too in a really interesting way. Um, but yeah, what, what are your thoughts on Barbie? I know you're a big Greta Gerwig fan. Yeah, I am. I mean, I think I was mostly, I mean, I mean, my expectations were low on some level. This is, you know, Barbie. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I was interested to see what she was going to do with it. But I think, yeah, I found it to be more, way more cynical than her previous work. Right. Um, and, and I didn't really buy into the weird spirituality, um, thing that happened by the, by the end. Um, and there was another big disappointment at the end that I'll, um, come back to. Um, but in general, you know, I mean, her, um, little women, uh, adaptation, which I really liked, mm -hmm. uh, especially how they, uh, managed grief. Uh, and she, you know, visually portrayed grief, um, and how the sisters were in tension, uh, surrounding, you know, their roles and their lives and poverty or, uh, and relationships and how these things, you know, unfold. Um, but ultimately it's Joe's, you know, spiritual journey herself of, uh, pursuing things and, and being disappointed and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but in the, um, you know, novel itself, you know, in it, well, essentially, Gerwig minimizes, not minimizes, but certainly um, uh, in terms of what she highlights, especially at the end of the movie, which is more of a kind of the fem Alcott feminist uh, perspective, which is fine because it's more true of Alcott's actual life. Right. Uh, that she didn't get married and she, you know, was a political activist and these kind of things in, in her time. Uh, but in terms of the faith, quality of faith and context of faith in the book, uh, that's more minimized in this adaptation. Um, and But even so, I thought, you know, there's still a spiritual journey going on there with Joe that I thought was profound. Um, and that she had to let go. Certain things had to die for her. Um, and other things, you know, came came to life. Even if that was a compromise mm -hmm. in the storytelling, um, as they highlighted in that one. So she was already kind of leaning in a certain direction, but I was not, you know, I, I welcomed the challenge there. Um, and, and obviously really love Lady Bird as well. But with this one, it just, you know, gave her the opportunity to explore feminism, mm -hmm. um, fully. And so, and to me, but it felt the most limited in terms of what could happen here spiritually and just became a cultural satire, which is hard for me because I typically just experience that as cynical. Mm. Um, and, and I think my biggest point was. I think, you know, most everybody, even people who didn't like Barbie, uh, loved Ryan Gosling's just commitment <laughs> to yeah. the performance. Yeah. Uh, but this is actually a Brene Brown thing for me uh, and her talking about love and connection, love and belonging being these essential things for human beings. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think I was actually pretty upset by how by the time you've taken Gosling, Ken, through mm -hmm. this journey of one, you know, 
pursuing Barbie and, and identifying with Barbie, uh, which is the thing they're trying to explore is like unhealthy attachment. Um, and when he can't fulfill that attachment, you know, patriarchy becomes this, uh, thing where he can get, you know, find this, these false forms of love and respect uh, and control, right. It's what we go for when we don't find love and belonging. Um, when we don't experience connection, which is a hardwired biological need, Mm -hmm. uh, according to Brene Brown's research. Um, and so when he actually does become, um, uh, vulnerable at the end, um, and is really, you know, one recognizing, uh, some having, having some insight, um, and still wanting to make this connection with Barbie. Like mm-hmm. it's Barbie and Ken, right. um, that he, that he's saying, and this is important to him. Um, and for him to then just be rejected with this, uh, very secular form of philosophy of, you know, you need to, uh, be an individual first. You don't need Barbie. You're it's it's Ken. It's Barbie right. and it's Ken. Um, so you know you're enough on your own. You don't need me. Um, and really plays into some other I think are really destructive forms of um, you know uh, ways of seeing ourselves and and being ourselves. Um, and and certainly you know then there was just no there's no spiritual connection. Um, but it, then they take us into this, you know, Barbie journey of, you know, becoming uh, a real person. So all that just like really, I had really hard time, mm-hmm. uh, reconciling any of that and even enjoying it, I think, mm-hmm. um, at that point. And I just felt bad for Ken. Um, yeah. and cause I wanted him to make that, you know, connection. So I think that was super difficult. Yeah. The, uh, what do you make of the, I am Knuff now? <laughs> like the, like, that's been kind of one of the things that's emerged from it is these. So like he wears that hoodie at the yeah, end yeah, oh, yeah. after that scene. Yeah. Well, again, it's just a very, you know, secular statement, uh, that you hear therapeutic statement that you hear everywhere of just trying to like, um, it's a mantra for us to, uh, manage our insecurity, mm-hmm. which we still have, uh, and the, or we wouldn't be saying it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so it's not actually contending with the lack the lack of spirituality, the lack of uh, relationship connection, the, the lack of certain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it actually just feels like it's a mask mm-hmm. um, for, you know, what's actually still going on internally mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what you're not, uh, what you're not getting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you, uh, this, I mean, maybe, maybe this is a question you're not ready to answer at this point, but like, I, th- I think of like the ending part in some sense parallel to like what goes on in Pinocchio like the original kind of like yeah. tale, like that, like not the Disney-fied version, right? Um, <clears throat> but where, in a certain sense, this is about like for 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 the original version, it's about the soul of Pinocchio. Um, I mean, in much right. in the same way that like the Little Mermaid, like the original story, is about right. the soul of her, you know, and about like reject. She actually rejects love so as to preserve her soul against the threat of like um, corruption for lack of a better term obviously those terms are very dated but if you read the original story it's it's actually quite beautiful like her uh thirst for and longing for the divine which again is not anywhere near (laughs) to the disney version um which is you know chooses the actually flows the exact opposite direction and i think in some sense like original pinocchio does that too like there's a sense in which discovering what it means to be a real boy, a real person, um, is this journey. And only at the end does this, this element of like the fulfillment of his 
of his like purpose, his, his being, his reality, this kind of like philosophical, theological um, mm-hmm. telling of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. In some sense, like when you come to the end with Barbie, and as I'm thinking, reflecting on it, as I will reflect on it, like for the thing that the creator, um, which that, that woman is, mm-hmm. is the person who invented Barbie, um, is in some sense to warn her about death, which I thought was a really fascinating way to go. Because they could have gone a lot of directions in that scene. Mm-hmm where she's deciding what her future is and things like that. And the goal there is death. And I thought that was really interesting. Like that, like finitude is what, what's important. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I thought that was a a really interesting inversion of the kind of trope of like Pinocchio, which is kind of the first like toy come to life tale. Yeah. Right. There, there are no new, there's nothing new under the sun as they say. Um, But this one um, I thought was really interesting that it moved away from that kind of spiritual core to, this like mm-hmm. I, I, I want to become human so I can die mm-hmm. uh, which is part of my like qualms with the end of the good place I don't hate the end of the good place but like ultimately the the absolute like nihilism of like the purpose of like life is just like nothingness mm-hmm. is just very unfulfilling but, for me yeah and it's interesting it's basically seeing culture contend with atheism yeah and that you know if I am atheist or nihilist Right. Um, and I'm going to somehow be okay with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think especially for younger people who are embracing these things um, and, uh, and, and, and choosing to live in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, there's certain things that have to happen, right? right? I mean, you have to, you have to take on certain mantras. You have to take on certain things that are going to uh, help you not become overwhelmed like mm-hmm. the midlife mother in Barbie who I right. wanted way more from uh, in terms of her actual midlife crisis that she's having uh, and projecting onto Barbie. Uh, I didn't felt like they, they barely explored that um, before she got into the more, I mean the several moments of preaching happening in there with feminism. Um, and are you talking again, about the mother? Yeah. 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 Uh, the mother-daughter, right, situation. And um, and so I thought they really uh, did not give us uh, anywhere near enough of her, just kind of like her her midlife experience and, and yeah. poverty. And in, instead it turned, again, outward towards patriarchy, uh, which, uh, again, <clears throat> with anything that's true there, still limited in terms of, again, like the spiritual quality of that experience is not happening because right. it's all going external anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I wanted more, yeah, a lot more from that. And, um, and, but yeah, again, just the yeah secular justification of existence, um, that, you know, that there doesn't need to be something more. And so I think, again, the question is, you know, what, <clears throat> what does secular culture need and what do individuals need mantras like I am enough, uh, in order to get through it so that mm-hmm. I'm not experiencing anxiety yeah. about death and mm-hmm. I'm not having existential thoughts, which are inevitable, uh, I think, um, going to come, that you are going to want to know more about those things. Yeah. So there's just a self-protective nature around all of it, which is mostly what I experienced from that movie, I think. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, hearing you talk, and I would, I would want to ask Greta Gerwig, because um, in some sense, like, the through line for me was this, this sense of, like, for all, I mean, and this is not a feminist, this is Martin Heidegger, right? So the right. journey of Barbie is she starts to have thoughts about death. Right. And then, I mean, obviously coming from 
this mother who's kind of thinking like with this Barbie and everything she's thinking is becoming Barbie's reality. And the solution for Barbie is to embrace death, right? As, as like, so like Heidegger would call that being towards death. And like in some sense, like this is the, the way that Heidegger explores and Heidegger is kind of the proto um, secular philosopher. Right. He's not the only one nor right. the first one. But it's an abandonment of transcendence and all of being is right collapsed here. And so, like, you know, if you think of, obviously, this is funny to think about knowing Heidegger himself, but the fact that, like, Dasein being Barbie, the thrownness of Barbie into the world, it's just kind of a perfectly Heideggerian drama. And so it's not even feminism in the right. full sense of the word. Obviously, it has a lot of parallels, and I'm right. saying there's a lot of themes there. Right. But in some sense, like, what would it look like to, um, in the end, I mean, this borrows a line from the daughter who when she's trying to hurt Barbie's feelings, throws all these things about like sexual capital and stuff like that. In some sense, Barbie is like Dasein is, you know, all these different things is kind of the commodified version of like what it counts to be a human. Um, and they kind of doubled down on that because mm -hmm. in the end, it's not this openness to um, others it's this kind of like self-actualization self-realization being towards death is the fulfillment and so i think that embedded sexual capital line is actually really telling over overall because yeah. design and like capital and these things like function in a way to name what is authentic existence and what is not right and it, this isn't really performing as robust of a critique as it thinks it is mm -hmm. by doubling down on that narrative and that story um, especially because Heidegger is not a feminist right um, by any stretch of the imagination using him in that way um, I think actually can be quite demeaning I mean I think you could use someone like I mean something that would have been far more interesting would have been someone like Simone de Beauvoir um, who writes her own kind of existential um like uh, engagement with gender and I think that's um, anyways that's the, yeah. th that's just like when I when I watch the movie like there are a lot of things that I, I think are are really interesting in there but I, I find it strange that they chose those themes philosophically and maybe it was unintentional maybe Greta Gerwig is not reading being in time in her spare time I don't know <laughs> um, but nonetheless um, yeah I think that's important well um uh, absolutely very important um, and great thoughts there to incorporate into that that I had not um, uh, had not come to the surface for me so that was great well you uh, probably haven't um, well I mean I, d I would not wish this on anybody but being in time is not fun <laughs> sure so if you haven't um, read it don't don't bother yeah no right on um, and but the one thing I would say the one highlight for me of Barbie uh, again where I thought maybe there was going to be you know it was going to be something more uh, but when Barbie, stereotypical Barbie, is in Los Angeles and she ends up sitting on a park bench or a bus bench um, and she's sitting next to a woman mm -hmm. and yeah. she just turns to her and tells her that she's beautiful. Uh, and then they both smile at one another. And Gerwig, you know, just allows for that, like, time of eye contact and smiling mm -hmm. um, and kind of revering um uh in a really what i thought was a beautiful uh image capture moment intimacy um that you know you know uh can be feminist or doesn't have to be feminist but it's just it was just a beautiful connecting uh warm uh moment that uh whether that was meant to be feminist or not uh for better or worse mm -hmm. uh it was just really it was transcended 
that's yeah. what I'm trying to say. No, yeah, that no. was a really good part. Um, and it's interesting they didn't really come back to that. Yeah, I know. I agree. I agree. Um, but then in another reference uh, that a lot of people have made, um, I mean, there's a lot of movie references uh, for sure, but Wings of Desire, which I don't know if you've ever seen. It's mm-hmm. a German movie. Uh, from the 80s and it's about two angels and who've you know existed for all of time that they've been created since the beginning of time um and they go around and observe and um you know p- uh, uh population in berlin uh in the 80s again mm-hmm. pre-wall coming down mm-hmm. and they're there just to kind of listen and to you know have impact or whatever but they're unseen obviously but one of the angels basically has a similar kind of you know, desire that Barbie mm-hmm. has, um, which is like, I want to become mortal. And like, I know that that, you know, means death, but he basically falls in love with this woman from the real world, mm-hmm. um, that draws him into this experience of transcending from being an a- unseen angel, uh, to a real life person, right. you know, and, and getting to eat food and smoke cigarettes and drink coffee and mm-hmm. fall in love with this woman. Um, and so it's a very spiritual movie and definitely, you know, 1000% more if you're looking for the spiritual quality of the story in addition to Pinocchio, mm-hmm. um, and Little Mermaid that that one definitely exists as a major rep point of reference. Uh, but definitely the more of what I'm, you know, looking for out of this kind of story. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's one of those things that like, I was going into this, like looking, looking forward to, the journey and there was some, i mean there were some parts in there that i really liked like the bench i mean i i i loved the joke i mean just because i i think i needed a laugh after oppenheimer right of when she called barbie a fascist mm-hmm. and barbie's just sitting on this bench crying and she's like i'm not even in charge of the economy or the trades <laughs> like just so literalized yeah right well, like i just died in that yeah. moment or like with the voiceover with helen mir and it's like note to the directors yeah, and the right. producers casting margot robbie in this role to make this point of being ugly is not the best yeah, choice. Right, right. Again, it, uh, it it is a profoundly witty movie, um, and the story that it attempts to tell, I think, is still an important one about the structures of society. Um, but I think the vehicles in which they chose, the 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 use of the image, like there there is a spiritual journey to tell here, but the use of things like Heidegger and of the collapsing secularity idea there in the end. Um, I think, you know, undercut some of the stronger themes that it could have shared as well. Right. Um, which leads us into Asteroid City. Just, I mean, we three big movies we tried to get through Yeah, here. no doubt. Well, theaters I usually choose from uh, were sold out, uh, or if not sold out, you know, enough where you'd sit in the front row. Yeah, that's right. Um, and <clears throat> so for the first time since, you know, 2020, uh, pre-COVID, I think I actually experienced uh, people at the movie theater, uh, long lines, you know, for popcorn and, uh, a whole number of things. I think gateway was even open all week, uh, this past week for the first time, Mm. um, since, uh, since pre COVID. Um, and so that's, uh, uh, my, uh, kind of weird side angle, uh, thought about that. It's just that, wow, people came out to the movies. Um, yeah. And this seemed to just trigger this kind of fun challenge, see them in the same day, which I did not do. Um, but uh, really fascinating that that uh, it brought people out to the movies the way mm-hmm. that uh, that it did, which I would have expected from some other movies. But 
uh, but did not um, experience uh, at all. So it was going to be really fascinating. Yeah, and I, I mean, I remember when I first saw that Barbie was being advertised as well as Oppenheimer. I never put the two together, but once the pair started getting um, that kind of publicity, that shared publicity on social media, I mean, mm-hmm. this is gold for stu- movie studios because they don't have to pay for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I. You know, when I went, it was also just packed. I mean, the last movie I went to that was this packed, because I went to Oppenheimer and Barbie, both of them sold out. Um, and this was even, like, on a Sunday, so several mm-hmm. days after mm-hmm. the, after this thing had started, uh, was Endgame with the Avengers, which is the Marvel. Yep. Um, and that's the first time where I felt this kind of, like, excitement around it. Mm-hmm. Which is fascinating. I mean, just thinking about it, because it's a movie about the device that will, I mean conceivably lead to the destruction of all life on, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. on the planet. You know, it's very existentially grim. And then on the same side, there, and you know, with Barbie, there's this sense in which, like, there are these very, it's very um, combative right now um, in the way that our society is structured too, that especially in the United States, um, obviously it's similar other places as well, but the ways in which we relate to one another can either lead to each other's healing or to each other's harm. Mm-hmm. And that's very clear too. That's also destructive in mm-hmm. its own way. Um, and it's interesting that these are the two movies <laughs> that people are flocking to go see. Um, we talk about on this podcast all the time about the difference between healing and hurting mm-hmm. um, uh, on the in the by the way of our films. And I think that's uh, that's something to think about. I I still think that they're both worth seeing because you can t- contend with some really important themes. But, um, yeah, I think we'll be talking about them through the rest of the year in terms of movies of the year and themes and um, and these kind of things, just like with everything, everywhere, all at once. Oh, yeah. Um, and how people, you know, responded to that one and um, and just continuing, yeah, to see what people are responding to mm-hmm. um, and what's kind of, again, elevating these conversations around politics and, and uh, systems um, and cynicism and, and fear and just these general kind of like, I don't, you know, feel safe. Um, and now there's aliens. So, That's right. you know, That's right. um, and so there's a lot there that I'm, you know, yeah. uh, always am kind of deconstructing and, and criticizing that side of things. But there's also, you know, just the real compassionate uh, perspective there of it's, it's really hard to contend with these things yeah right no you're absolutely right and um and people are you know uh even at your best effort uh as we uh before this podcast started talking about the barbershop in jaber crow and this kind of safe contained space that got invaded by the news media you know in mid-century um and how that changed you know the town how that changed Mm -hmm. people um, and so that's, we're just dealing with that constantly on greater and greater levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have not plateaued, um, there. We're not coming back down or, or going back to something better. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're still exploring we're still seeing what's going to happen with AI. What's going to happen with the aliens? What's going to happen with Russia, Ukraine? So it's mm-hmm. all really interesting. It'll be, I mean, one thing that I would like to explore sometime later this fall. Well, two things actually, first of which is, um, AI in films. I think there's some really great AI films mm-hmm. uh, with like Millennium Man, Robin Williams, uh, I Robot with Will Smith, but even her with uh, mm-hmm. Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson. Some really interesting 
ideas there. Um, and it's it's interesting. I, I one of the movies that was previewed. I know we will talk about mm-hmm. Killer of the Flower Moon, mm. uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, yeah, yeah, Scorsese's yeah. new yeah. film. Um, I imagine we'll probably pick up some of these themes again when we get mm-hmm. there because sure. I think there's some strong sense of feminism there about culture, destruction. Um, all of that kind of stuff yeah. that um, is present in these two films right there too. And it's Scorsese, which I know you're a fan of. So mm-hmm. I know we'll talk about that when yep. we get there. Um, well, let's get to Asteroid City before this thing turns into a three-hour podcast. Yeah. Um, obviously, this film, aesthetically for me, is very pleasing. Um, and I, I know that it probably uses a lot more green screen than I uh, would probably care for. Um, but... I loved just the look of it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it has a very Wes Anderson kind of like palette, like very no, soft, no s- soft colors and things like that. Um, and you know, I'm a huge Tom Hanks fan. I've said it multiple times. One hundred. And uh, and I just the, the just a huge cast of people that's really great here. And really, it just follows a a family in grief um, over the loss of mm-hmm. a mother, a daughter, um, a wife. You know, and and um, obviously involves the theme of aliens, <laughs> Asteroid City, Absolutely, right? yeah. Um, and, and so, like, in some sense, this is one of your favorite movies of the year, so I kind of want to step out of the way and hear, like, what about this film, like, has um, made such an impact on you? Yeah, well, obviously the component of grief. Um, so in one of my um, brief little reviews, uh, just highlighting a number of things that are being said, right? Um, that uh, don't um, necessarily you wouldn't necessarily associate them with grief, uh, but certainly when you think about it in the context of grief, is actually very powerful. Uh, like everything is connected, but nothing is working. Mm-hmm. Um, was a was one of the quotes. And you haven't, you haven't finished the movie, right? No, but yeah. feel free if you. Want well, to yeah, I'll, I won't go. Um, uh, try not to spoil anything, but uh, but really getting into what I uh, I said, you know, mostly I'm impressed with how grief, love, dreams, reconciliation, forgiveness, and transformation, all of which is inner space, right? Mm-hmm. So we are continuing with this world where th- there's aliens, um, and outer space is you know uh, still very mysterious, and there's the atomic bomb out in the distance, uh, which was fascinating to see after watching because I watched Asteroid City three times, and all three times. Oppenheimer trailer was like right before the movie started. Mm. Uh, and that's an early scene where you see the bomb uh, and then he takes a picture of it. Um, but again, so all these, you know, the alien, the atomic bomb, uh, all suggesting again, these, these big fears and mysteries, uh, things that, that were, you know, as, you know, just normal people uh, who care about, you know, science or family or traveling or whatever um, that are just like, those are way bigger than we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but, uh, but Wes uses, you know, all of that stuff to contend with and represent internal, the mm-hmm. inner space, uh, which is a, uh, word that, uh, also referenced, uh, Andre Tarkovsky's movie Solaris, which was remade. Right. I don't know if you saw the remake, um, with George Clooney, but the original is also very powerful. And that's kind of the, his, it was Tarkovsky. He was a famous Russian director his response to Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey, which he found cold uh, and secular, and uh, Solaris was more of this kind of spiritual contending, internal contending. Um, anyways, I think that that's, um, uh, you know, it's really just the most 
profound thing to hold on to in the mm-hmm. second and third watch is being with this family and how sincere this is and how melancholy um, uh, it is and, and in the context of everything that's going on in a weird Wes Anderson way. And then you also have the, the kind of meta storytelling thing happening with the theater and the writer right? Um, and the director and the you know actors and all that stuff, which I was not prepared for in the first watch. Um, totally threw me off and uh, didn't really know what to do with that um, and or how to under, you know incorporate it, understand it all together. Uh, but came really came uh, in in a way that was um, uh, profound mm-hmm. uh, in the second and third watch. Um, but then just the other things like the typical um, use of faces and eyes in, in any Wes Anderson film. Uh, but again, in this one, uh, because it was so kind of s- surfaced emotional for the family who's lost their mother, um, that, you know, just um, how they're moving their eyes and, mm-hmm. and had the focus on the eyes and the acting with the eyes uh, was, again, just so intimate. Right. Right. It's like that scene from Barbie when the two women are staring at each other and appreciating each other. You're just getting this kind of gaze. Um, and all the emotional, vulnerable stuff, you know, that comes along with that without anything being said, um, which I just thought, you know, is what's just beautiful um, and obviously relatable. Um, and so, yeah, contending with all that, there's definitely some existential stuff, you know, in there as well to connect with this, you know, Barbenheimer, um, you know, kind of stuff. And but for Wes, this is, you know, again, nothing new to you know, unconsciously, uh, move in to, uh, space. So he did this in 2007 with Darjeeling limited, mm-hmm. um, the spiritual journey by train, uh, which is probably my, not just my favorite Wes Anderson, uh, sometimes my favorite movie, of the 21st century. Mm. Um, and, but that came out in the year of, um, there will be blood and no country for old men and a number of other, like we're now responding to Bush and Iraq and this whole thing, movies, uh, they were very heavy, uh, and a lot of them very cynical. I've varied arguments about There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men, which would be fun. I think There Will Be Blood will come up with this new Scorsese movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and But anyways, uh, this real sense of uh, Wes really bringing this whole other internal perspective yeah. um, in intense political times mm-hmm. uh, so, and, and within intense political filmmaking – um, you know, he's opening up, you know, something else, uh, that is very cinematic, um, that is very personal, um, and is just contending with obviously all the things I love to contend with in movies, uh, surrounding relationships and grief and, and the funny ways of, you know, finding love again, um, and, uh, and just kind of his quirky, you know, quirky world. Um, but yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> I, I love that too. And, and it's part of the, one of those things that is so endearing about Wes Anderson is the fact that um, the, uh, the pacing and the speech and the aesthetic are so jarring that the other themes kind of just naturally come to the foreground. Mm-hmm. Um, like it kind of pushes those out. So like in a, you know, in a Marvel film, like you're kind of submerged in certain aesthetics, certain action that are really just kind of, 
bland and the same. Mm-hmm. Here, this is all very different. And so you're just like, this is weird. Why is this weird? What's being said? And I love the preference for ritual, even in just like the girls, I mean, bearing the Tupperware of their mom, mm-hmm. the ashes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's mm-hmm. other rituals too, the rituals of like the father taking pictures, developing the pictures, mm-hmm. you know. And one, but one of my favorite things is the fact there are these like earth shattering things happening all around them, like the alien, the bomb, and all those kind of things. Yet the family is most concerned with grieving, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which I, I thought was actually really, even the father, like the strange kind of relationship between the mm-hmm. father-in-law and the husband, mm-hmm. you know, um, and the ways in which they are coming to recognize and appreciate one another. Yeah. Um, and the ways in which they've wronged one another. Um, that was, I think, something really helpful. And I, I also just find something um immensely endearing about the the failed actress kind of motif uh, in a certain sense of yeah uh, right or the struggling actress motif of scarlett johansson i thought that was actually really quite good even though i haven't finished it so <laughs> right you know i i'm still waiting to see how the payoff for that and how that how that all goes but you know um there is something more palatable about this than um oppenheimer <laughs> for sure mm-hmm. um but yeah, I, I am a little exhausted by the Nolan aesthetic. Um, it's the, especially with Tenet, like it is, that movie was one of the first movies, big movies I saw after COVID and the theaters reopened. Right. And it like, I mean, it massively bombed, not for its own fault, but just because they can only sell so many tickets. And I just remember being exhausted by the end of it. <laughs> this one, it just, I need to like, um, I mean, Interstellar was another one where I was just like, this is. Yeah, no doubt. And I mean, Inception. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could go on and on every Nolan film, but the um, yeah, I uh, this one I um, didn't feel exhausted by, but I know that in like like a good book, I need to take my time with it to yeah, really sure. get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. At some point, you're going to need to tell me your list of of Wes Anderson films because mm-hmm. that's one of the things I've seen a lot of my friends who are big Wes Anderson fans. Um, and like you know, what's what's the favorite? I'm, I'm I know which one's at the top now. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> I I, I do yeah. want to know where my favorite is on the list. The yeah, Life Aquatic. Um, is it in the top five at least? Um, so top five right now, uh, without qualifying Asteroid City into that list, um, but would be, uh, Darjeeling, uh, probably Isle of Dogs. Um, and or Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, but those are both great spiritual journeys. Um, Moonrise Kingdom uh, would be there. So that er- kind of era, Darjeeling, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Moonrise. Uh, Grand Budapest is in there, but that's not one of my favorites, although I think it's great. Um, and then, and and then say, all Dogs. these are kind of recent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but then um, I would probably jump back to Rushmore before I would say Life Aquatic. <sighs> Um, so disappointing. But, but that doesn't mean that I think it's lesser. Um, it's just more my, you know, the things I'm extracting. But I think the uh, what's great and challenging about Life Aquatic is it was like his biggest budget. And, and there's, I mean, I, part of the reason he made Darjeeling Limited uh, was so uh, few resources and few uh, uh, things happening there was because he was exhausted. Uh, by Life Aquatic and the whole the whole production, but uh, but I love the relationship, the father son relationship. Mm-hmm. Obviously, everything that's happening there with Owen Wilson and Bill Murray, um, and what they're contending with, and 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 then yeah, some of the bigger scale stuff in terms of the boat and the pirates and 
uh, the water and, you know, uh, and his typical themes happening throughout um, yeah. is super great. Yeah. So uh, that one doesn't, yeah, typically make it to the top five, but that doesn't well, mean okay. that there's, there's like a, for me, when we're talking about 21st century filmmakers, you know, Wes Anderson is just at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not really fair to, to qualify yeah. and rank necessarily. But yeah. it's more of just when I see like the direct um, opening and the scene in Darjeeling, uh, which, you know, we can talk about at length at some point, but when they get kicked off the train, mm-hmm. uh, which is their real spiritual journey, um, all the things that happen there um, pretty immediately are just, again, some of my favorite images, montages, uh, flashback experience, two funerals happening uh, that are just, you know, Incredible. some of the richest stuff mm-hmm. that exists. So, Yeah, well, it's one of those things that we'll probably come back. We'll probably come back to all three of these movies throughout the semester. Yeah. And <coughs> just because, I mean, what in terms of new films coming out, I, I think the the writer strike, the actor strike, and the director strike, um, which I think is incoming, um, will or imminent, will be an interesting kind of theme also to kind of come through here because who knows how long this is going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, nonetheless, I think that this is an interesting time to be going to the cinema, and these are interesting films that are in there, and I'm curious to see um, what other films will come um, to the fore. There's some good horror movies out, like Talk to Me. I've heard that it's like the highest rated horror film of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, for me personally, Ninja Turtles is out is coming out. That's um, something that me and my mom will go see. We've seen every Ninja Turtles movie in theaters, so we'll do that together. And then there's obviously like Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, will be really interesting to see what that film mm-hmm. has to tell us. And so, um, lots of stuff coming out here. Um, in the next several months um, and we'll, we'll be your uh, one-stop shop to cover it all so 100 any final thoughts as we're kind of wrapping up here on these very three very big films yeah no um, at some point I'd love to to uh, deep dive maybe for Dead Reckoning Part 2 oh yes uh, next year uh, dig into why I love the uh, the Mission Impossible series yeah. so much when I'm not typically a big franchise uh, you know, kind of guy. Um, but that one's really stolen my heart. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to do that. I've always loved mission impossible films. Uh, I, um, unapologetically, um, grew up with action films. That was kind of one of the things that me and my family would do on the weekends. We'd go rent movies and I'd always get an action film and watch through all the mission impossible films. And so, um, I'm happy to dedicate a whole podcast just to, uh, the Mission Impossible series. So, yeah, that's um, awesome. We'll do that. But sweet. Uh, be looking out for that and our body snatchers and hopefully one of our uh, um, podcasts on AI films, uh, which mm-hmm. has a really direct relevance to the strike actually happening right now. Um, so uh, stay tuned to, to our social media and to our feed to see what's uh, coming out. And we'll look forward to sharing some time with you. We really appreciate you sharing some time with us. Um, as we're kind of wrapping up here, if you want to help the podcast, the best way to do it is leave a review for us wherever you listen to this podcast. It really helps other people find us. But until next time, for Kyle yep. and for myself, um, uh, be well, stay safe, and uh, we'll see you next time here on the Art House Roadshow. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us on Art House Roadshow. We'll see you next time. <laughs>